Let us pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, my 16-year-old son, Calvin, got his driver's license yesterday. Um, Yeah, it's one of those milestones you never forget as a child or a parent. Um, So, because it was on the weekend, the insurance doesn't kick in until Monday, so he hasn't gone on his first, you know, drive, solo drive. But you got to remember that moment where you're you're in the car, you get your license, and you're just free. Go anywhere you want. This is a great experience of freedom. And uh, today we're talking about freedom, God's deliverance and the freedom of God's people. Freedom is a concept that goes deep into the human heart. And I believe it's because God designed us to be free. God wants his people to be free. God needs his people to be free. And God is a deliverer God and makes his people free. Um, But just because God is a deliverer God and wants us to be free, it doesn't mean that we always use our freedom well. I remember when I got my driver's license, I made some poor choices with my freedom and what I uh, did with the car and places I went and things I chose to do. Um, In the same way, we can misunderstand our freedom. We can get it wrong individually. We can get our individual freedom wrong. I think many people view freedom as uh, a sense of uh, no inhibitions, that nothing can hold me back from, you know, that freedom is really about no constraints in my life, that I'm going to just live my most authentic self, uh, however I define that, and nothing can inhibit me from that. Freedom is being uninhibited by my society, by my government, by my neighbors, by by anything so that I can just pursue um, this sense of freedom. But is that that freedom truly? If um, If you just are pursuing your own desires or your own sense of self, is that really freedom? Because in a sense, you would become a slave to pursuing that, to that thing, that, that notion of self that you're trying to pursue. It's not, um, that's not actually freedom. Freedom doesn't mean no constraints in life. We actually, again, the driving example, you know, you get in the car, your first drive with your new uh, driver's license, you, you know, there is a great sense of freedom, but gas isn't free, and car insurance is not free. And you're not free to operate that car however you want, as the Nashua police officer would remind me from time to time. Um, the same is true with our faith. It, we, we realize that it's our freedom expressed in, in obedience to God is where we truly understand what it means to be free. Uh, to, that we are not just free from constraints, but we, we are free to love and to serve and to experience God. I think corporately we can get freedom wrong in the same way. This whole exodus motif and what we read in scripture has become a, a way of people understanding their groups of people to understand um, their freedom, these various liberation movements um, from various different political perspectives have grabbed on to this exodus notion of, of deliverance. So in the 18th century, you know, the American Revolution, the exodus Deliverance, uh, the language was very much part of um, the, the American notion of being freed from this political slavery, kind of exodus from, from England. Uh, the 19th century, the abolitionists you know, developed a theology of liberation using these same kind of biblical images, you know, let my people go, was kind of the rally cry. 
uh, 20th century African-American exodus politics, you know, most famously expressed uh, in the prominent speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. and others. There's like, it's just oozing with exodus language and freedom language. And even more contemporary examples, uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama both used exodus story and exodus language in their rhetoric and in their speeches. So, we, you know, there's all different groups who want a piece of the story and sort of claiming it for themselves. But the, the problem with these rereadings of the Exodus story into more of a political narrative is that it, um, it misses the significance of the bulk of the book of Exodus, which happens after this freedom, after this departure. Um, it's that God didn't just bring freedom from Egypt. He doesn't just bring freedom from bondage or from some, um, whether it's a political or economic bondage. It's, it's a freedom to do a different kind of service to a different kind of God, a different kind of king of the people. You still, once you're free, you still serve a king the way that God delivers his people. Um, so anyway, there's all kinds of ways that we can, um, we, we like this idea, but we can get it wrong. And we want to understand it rightly as we look at God's word. So uh, let's take a look here. Three things about this uh, God is deliverer. First, how did God deliver Israel at the Passover, how God delivers us today, and then what do we, how do we live with this kind of freedom? So first, how God delivered the Israelites. So last week, we left Moses at the burning bush. God called him to go back to his people and to confront Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, to free the, the Israelites who had become slaves. And so Moses takes, takes his wife and kids. He said, you know, I don't even know if there's any of them left. It had been so long that he had been away. And he goes back to Egypt, and he meets up with his brother, Aaron, who God called to be sort of Moses' uh, spokesperson. They gather the elders of Israel and say, this is what God told us. They believe. Uh, so Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh, and they say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And he's angry, and he not only doesn't let them go, but he works them even harder and harder. And then the people become bitter because they're even more oppressed now, now that Moses has come in, and so they're kind of upset at Moses, and Pharaoh's upset at Moses, and, um, and they go back. They say, let my people go, but because you're not listening, there's going to be signs and wonders. There's going to be these, uh, these judgments that will come upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh and upon the, you know, kind of against the gods of Egypt. And, and so the plagues, very famously, God's sending these different plagues of judgment against Egypt. It was the, the blood and the frogs and the, the boils on the skin and the gnats and the locusts and all, the whole thing. And so the, we, here in our reading today, we have the last of the plagues, the 10th plague. And it's the final plague. It's the death of the firstborn. This is uh, clearly the harshest of the plagues. The plagues had destroyed the land and decimated Egypt in different ways. But this is a very irreversible type of a plague with the death of, 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 of these children. And it sounds immensely harsh for God to send this type of a plague. But remember, this whole story started, Exodus chapter 1, what's going on? You have Pharaoh killing babies, telling the midwives to, to kill the babies and commanding that all the boy babies be thrown in the Nile River. It's, you, here we, you know, Pharaoh killing babies and the judgment against Pharaoh is the death of firstborn children. But in this plague, God 
protects his people. He spares them. He provided a way for death to pass over their homes. Because, not because they're better than the Egyptian people, but because they're God's chosen people. Because God has made promises to bless this nation of people. So he provides a way, he provides a substitute that a lamb, a spotless lamb, would, would die in their place. And you take, you take the lamb's blood and you put it on the doorposts and the, the sides of your door of your house. And this sign, when God sees it, that death passes over the house and they are protected. And so this happens that night. And that very night, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and says, go. Take, take your people. Take your livestock. Just go and get out of here. And they uh, quickly leave and they are freed, and they start making their way. This kind of begins their journey towards the promised land, and we'll look at the rest of that journey as we go. But beautiful things we see in this. And again, the themes of Exodus are really, it it really shows us who God is in these kind of big and vivid ways. One is that God indeed is a deliverer. God God saves his people, and he rescues them from slavery, and he wants them to be free. We also see that God is faithful, When God makes a promise, when God binds himself in a covenant promise to people, God always fulfills his promises. And we see also that God is both a judge and a savior at the same time. And for those of you who were here for our Revelation series, you remember that we talked about how God is both a God of judgment, but a God of mercy and salvation, and God is a rescuing God. So he holds both of those things in perfect harmony in his his way, and we see that all here. So how does God deliver us today? Well, it's the same God, the same deliverer God, the same faithful God, but it's a different lamb. That there, there was a greater Passover and a greater Passover lamb that was coming to the world, and it's Jesus. And the first Passover really does show us what Jesus is all about. In fact, you can't fully understand who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross, unless you understand this Passover and understand what God did for his people then. And that's why we we teach from the Old Testament. That's why we want to understand the Old Testament because it prepares our hearts to have just a fuller view of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so you get to the, you know, you get to the New Testament and we can ask questions like, how could the blood of an animal actually forgive sins? Or how could, how could an animal really be a substitute for, for people? When we think about the Passover story. Well, the answer is, it actually couldn't. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that it's impossible for the blood of animals to genuinely and ultimately substitute human life or forgive human sin. It can't take away sin. But Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist, who was the prophet and who's you know, foretelling of Jesus, he sees Jesus, and what does he say in John chapter 1? He says, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the true substitute, the true Lamb, the, true, the ultimate Passover. And um, this, is the, this is what I would think is kind of obvious imagery that Jesus is seen as the ultimate Passover lamb and what he accomplished on the cross. It was his blood, not the blood of a lamb, but the blood of Jesus himself that covers us, protects us from death, that forgives us of our sin. He's the ultimate substitute. 
Um, but there's some other imagery in the Passover here that also points us to Jesus. You'll, you'll notice in what was in, in the reading that was read for us that a lamb, a perfect lamb, was selected on the tenth day of the month, and was sort of viewed and put on display for four days. And on the fourteenth day of the month, the lamb would be slaughtered. And when we think about Jesus going to Jerusalem and going to the temple, this is what we celebrate on what we call Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry. You know, Jesus is, the, the true lamb is coming in uh, to the place of sacrifice. And he, he comes in, and for four days, he's, he's tested by the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. And he has this four-day uh, sort of testing and trials where he's proven to be innocent. He's proven himself to be the perfect lamb, and then he's killed on, on, that, on that Friday. The other, the other thing, the other parallel with Jesus is um, by the time of Jesus, the, the Passover meal and the remembrance was really meant to be celebrated in homes, you know, with you and your neighbor, as, as the text said. But by the time of Jesus, there was also a communal celebration of Passover, and there was a lamb that was selected for the people. And this lamb would be put out uh, in the temple court, uh, in the courtyard at 9 a.m., and then it would be publicly slaughtered at 3 p.m. And Jesus, as we understand, was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m., and he dies at 3 p.m. Again, the true and ultimate Passover lamb for us. And just like the blood of the Passover lamb was spread on the the. The, the, vertical, the vertical and the horizontal beams of the houses. Jesus' blood poured out on the, the vertical and horizontal beams of the cross. The, the blood of the true lamb poured out. And, and interesting here that the, the whole Passover story in verse 2 begins with these words. It says, this month is to be for you the first month, the, the first month of your year. So with the Passover, God is resetting their calendar. He's like, hey, this is a whole new beginning. Your, li- your lives as slaves is coming to an end, and this is month number one, and this is day number one, and you're starting a new life, and we're going to define time by this amazing event. And in Jesus Christ, when we put our faith in what he accomplished on that cross, we get a, we get a new beginning, a day one, a rebirth. This is the day you are born again, and you are living a new, abundant, and eternal life in Jesus. It, as Scripture says, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new is, is coming to be in Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate Passover. And all of this imagery is why the, the New Testament writers, the early Christians, they said they call Christ the Passover. That Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. And they, they embraced that image. And we embrace that image. So what do we do with it? What do we do with this deliverance or freedom that's offered to us? Three things. One, you have to receive it. You may have heard, I don't know, a pastor or an evangelist or someone say, you know, have you been covered in the blood of Jesus? Which, if you don't know this, if you don't know your Bible, that's horrifying. I mean, that's kind of a weird and scary image, covered in blood. What, what, why do Christians sing about this precious blood? But, but ultimately, you have to, be covered. You have to receive this thing. It wasn't enough that a lamb was sacrificed, that the blood actually had to be put on the home. They actually had to do something with it. So picture a little Israelite boy living in Egypt and his family. They're just poor slaves and they have their little house. And, and he's the 10-year-old, so he's the oldest boy. 
and he's got little brothers, and they're kind of goofing off, and they're being normal, annoying little brothers. But Dad has this, these hyssop plants, and he's got this lamb, and they're going to sacrifice it and eat it. And, um, and he's hearing this, and he knows that he's the oldest, he's the firstborn son, this 10-year-old kid. And, and this is a wild story. So parents send him to bed. Little brother's having a pillow fight or whatever, keeping him up. But they fall asleep. But 10-year-old brother, he cannot fall asleep. And he's lying there. He does not know what's going to happen. So he, he finally can't fall asleep. He gets up. He goes, goes into the kitchen, and there's the bowl of blood still sitting there on the table. And he says, Mom, what, what's going on? The blood, why is the blood still sitting there? I was supposed to put this on the house, like Dad said. And she said, oh, don't worry about it, Dad. You know, Dad was out taking care of something outside. He'll, he'll finish it later. Just go to bed. You think that kid's ever going to be able to sleep? After hearing the story that he just heard? So mom says, look, go to bed. When dad finishes this, we'll go to your room, and we'll let you know everything's in place. So sure enough, kid lying there, wide awake. Mom and dad go in and say, hey, we put the blood on the doorpost. We put it, put it over the top and the sides of the door. Everything is all set. We're going to be safe. And they were. And that night they were able to... Um, to gather quickly and go and be freed. But there's, you could just imagine the, the anxiety of not actually, it's not just about the fact that the lamb had died, but actually doing something with it. And for us, we, we have to do something with the fact that Jesus died, and we have to receive it by faith. It's a faith thing. It's something that happens in your heart, and it's something that you profess Romans 10 describes it like this, as if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, it is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. It's not enough that Jesus died, you actually have to believe it in your heart, and you have to profess faith. Yes, I believe that Jesus died in my place, and yes, I believe that he rose again, and that he's conquered death, and that he's bringing me new life, and we we have to put our faith in that. Otherwise, we're like that kid lying in bed, not knowing what's going to happen. But we can have the peace and the security of putting our faith in what Jesus has done. We need to receive it. We need to receive it. We also need to remember it. So when the Passover happened, God said, this is, this is, you need to remember this. You're going to celebrate a Passover feast every year. And for generation to generation, you always need to remind yourself what I've done. For us, we celebrate a memorial meal. Every month here at the church, we celebrate communion. We remember the body and the blood of Jesus. And, and we receive it. And we remember his sacrifice. We remember what it costs. We remember his grace. We remember the fact that God wants us to be free people. Free from guilt, free from sin, free to know and experience God in everything. And it's a communal event. It's something that we gather to do together. And it reminds us that God has called us to be a people together uh, to celebrate this. And we gather in so many different ways. We gather in small groups. We gather in for just for fun and for fellowship. And we gather, uh, we, we, membership is a kind of representation of our community. But when we gather for that memorial meal, it really just brings us right back to remember, um, remember what he's done. So, so there's communion. But the other remembrance is, is Sabbath. So Sabbath is the command of God to rest. That God does not want his people to just always be working and always trying to achieve. But, to, but God commands his people to rest. But the Sabbath command is rooted specifically 
in God's deliverance. So Deuteronomy chapter 5 describes it like this. He said, um, it says, on, observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. Seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Verse 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe, observe a Sabbath day. He's saying, I want you to take time as my people to rest because it reminds you that I'm your deliverer. It reminds you that I am always at work and you don't have to always be at work. That your life is defined by how I have saved you, not by what you accomplish and all the great things you get done. You need to stop. You need to rest. You need to be people who relax. You need to be people who recreate. And know, and, and in that rest, know that God is still the deliverer, that it's his might and his strength, not yours. And that's a great reminder for all of us. We live in a very fast-paced world. We've got very busy schedules, and we've got a lot going on. And we need to stop, and we need to rest, and we need to remember so we remember through communion, we remember through Sabbath. Um, so we need to re- receive it, remember it, and also respond. So as we remember, it causes us to respond. Remember, God has made us free, but not just free, just so there's no constraints in life, but it's a different kind of freedom. Romans 6.18 says, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Or 1 Peter 2 Live as free people. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. God wants his people to be free, but he said, in your freedom, you're actually kind of a slave to righteousness, or you're God's slave, as, as Peter says here. I mean, that's kind of a, it seems like a negative image, but it's a beautiful image, because we are now bound to goodness. We are bound to God's design and God's way, and this is a beautiful thing. Galatians chapter 5 puts this as clear as can be. It says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled. In keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourselves. Your freedom is not just so you can do whatever feels good to you, so that you can just kind of live your most authentic you and this kind of, um, these kind of notions. It's not to just follow my own desires. I've been freed so that I can serve other people, that I can love and serve wherever God puts me. Um, I encourage you, we, the more we've been looking at Exodus, the more we, we, we've been really compelled to consider how we serve one another, that God has freed us to be a people so that we can love and serve. There's the serve section of our website. We were just looking at that and updating that this week. There's so many ways we can serve in the church, serve our community, but also everywhere you go that you can wake up tomorrow. God, you have, I thank you that you've made me a free person. Lord, free me to serve someone today. Who is it? Who needs me to pray for them? Who needs me to listen to them? Who can I bless today as I go? Because Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover, has set us free. We're going to use our freedom to love and to serve. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, this beautiful gift that you've given us. The ultimate substitute, Jesus Christ, on the cross for us to give us new life. Or may we receive this by faith. May, it, may we remember it well. And may it propel us and launch us into our lives to be people who use our freedom to bless. To use our freedom to experience and, and know you and to know how you guide us. 
to these good places, Lord. Help us to grow in our freedom. Help us to use it well. Be glorified in this, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.